continuing our studies this morning in the book of Psalms, and so I invite you to turn there with me once more, this time to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Father, as we open your word this morning and look at this particular psalm, I pray that you would use it in our lives to help us to do just what we have finished singing. As your word says in the book of Acts, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God, help us, some of us perhaps, to believe in the Lord Jesus for the first time this morning, and all of us to believe in him afresh, and for our faith in him, our confidence in him, our rejoicing in him to be deepened by what we see in this psalm. And we pray in his name. Amen. This psalm, as you can see there, is quite a long one, 52 verses in all. And we're going to work our way eventually through the entirety of it. But let's just begin right now with the first 18 verses. It is a mosquito of Ethan, the Ezraite, and it reads as follows. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. I wonder if you ever thought of just sitting down with a pen and a blank piece of paper and beginning to fill up the page with the various reasons that you have to praise the Lord. might be a helpful exercise for most of us, maybe on a Lord's Day evening, just to take the time to write out the various reasons why God is worthy of our praise. And if you did that, when you got finished, you might have something a little bit like these first 18 verses of Psalm 89, only maybe without the poetic element. 
Because that's what we have here in these initial verses. The psalmist has put his pen to paper and he's given us a fairly extensive list of the reasons that he has to sing to the Lord. Just one thing after another in rapid succession. You are this, you are that, your faithfulness and so on. Just look at it. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Verses 8 through 10, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. You, your, you, your, over and over again, just telling the Lord how good he is, how faithful he is, how strong he is, and so on. You have a strong arm, verse 13. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted, and so on. All these reasons that he just pours out onto the page to praise the Lord in this poetic flourish, 18 verses, just chocked full of worship. And it might be good for us sometime to just sit down and do that ourselves, just to remind ourselves of all the reasons that we have to praise our God. And as we do that, and particularly as we look at how the psalmist does it, I wonder if you noticed how he extols the Lord both for his attributes and for his actions. Praises the Lord in two different ways. He praises him for his attributes, for who he is, and he praises him for his actions, for what he has done. Just look back through briefly and notice several of the attributes of God, several character traits of the Lord that the psalmist extols here. Verse 1, loving kindness. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Or... If you have the King James, it translates it mercies, God's tenderness, his love, his condescension to human beings. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. And then in the second half of the verse, to all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Faithfulness, God's covenant-keeping nature, always following through, always doing what he has promised to do, always acting in accordance with his word. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. And then in verse 13, he praises God for his might. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. He praises God for his power, for his strength, his ability to accomplish whatever he pleases as Psalm 115 puts it. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Righteousness, justice, truth, all these things which have to do with God's commitment to do what is right, his uprightness, the strength of his character, righteousness, justice, truth. So we have these attributes that he's praising God for. Loving kindness, faithfulness, might, righteousness, justice, truth. The psalmist praises God for who he is. And it's good for us to do the same. Louis Giglio, some of you have heard of him, has said that worship is our response to God for who he is and for what he has done. Worship is our response to God for who he is and for what he has done. And sometimes we may forget that first part. We may be so interested in what God does for us that we fail to stop and thank him for who he simply is, to praise him for his attributes, for who he would be if we never existed in the world. 
But the psalmist does both. He praises God for who he is, for his attributes. He praises God for what he has done, for his actions. So notice that with me as well in these first 18 verses. The psalmist praising God for his actions. We heard him praising God in verses 9 and 10 for his victory over Rahab or Egypt during the time of the Exodus. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Just praising God for how the, Isra- the Israelites passed through on dry ground, but when the Egyptians went through the Red Sea, God destroyed his enemies. And then in verses 11 and 12, the psalmist goes further back in time and praises God as creator and for his creation. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them, the north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. I praise you, God, for your creation. And then in verses 15 through 18, he praises the Lord for his care for his own people. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. We are who we are because you have done what you have done. So he praises God for his creation, for the exodus, and for God's ongoing care in the life of his people. That's what this Old Testament saint has to thank God for. The very sorts of things that we have to thank God for today, right? Already this morning, we've been praising God as creator, have we not? In the words of Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, we sang, Every star and every planet has been fashioned by your hand. Saying the same sorts of things that the psalmist says. And then Matthew Westerholm put these words into our mouths this morning. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ, for through you and for you it was made. And of course, in between those songs, we read from John chapter 1, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so today, we're still praising God for the very same things the psalmist was praising him for over two millennia ago. Isn't that amazing? And we don't just praise God for his creation. Today, we still praise him for the exodus. Now, for us, not so much the exodus from Egypt, though we ought to still praise God for that too, but we praise God especially today for the even greater exodus which Israel's rescue from Egypt symbolized. They were kept safe from the angel of death by means of the blood of an unblemished lamb. And they were led out of their captivity by God's great prophet Moses. And we too are kept safe from death by the blood of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, aren't we? And we have been led out of captivity, captivity to sin, by the very prophet whom Moses told the Israelites would come after him, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we have our own exodus to sing about, don't we? And we do sing about that too, just as the Israelites sang about theirs in verses 9 through 10 and elsewhere. In fact, if there's anything we sing about most when we gather together, it is this salvation, this rescue, this exodus achieved for us by the Lord Jesus. 
And surely we also are still praising the Lord, not only for his creation, not only for our exodus, but also as the psalmist in verses 15 and following, we're praising him still for his ongoing care for his people. The praises that we share together on Wednesday nights usually fall into this category, don't they? Just praising God for healing or for work or for witnessing opportunities or for protection or for answered prayer or what have you. What am I trying to say? Not only that you could sit down on a Sunday afternoon and create a personal list of all sorts of reasons to praise the Lord, but that you could, in fact, just take the one that the psalmist has already compiled here and make it your own, praying through it, maybe putting it into your own words and adapting it to your own situation. Because still today, we have the very same reasons to praise God as ever did this psalmist. And we ought to do so. Not only when we gather, but all the time we ought to be praising the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. And we ought to do so not only on pen and paper, but with our lips as well, right? I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. If you don't yet join wholeheartedly in singing with us, you ought to, because If you're to praise God like the psalmist, you will want to be able to say, I will sing. And we ought, whether it's in the prayer meeting or during the Wednesday night praise time or just in Christian fellowship around the tables, we ought to make God's faithfulness sometimes known verbally to others as well. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Now, not everyone is demonstrative or as extroverted as the next person, but we can all tell somebody how good the Lord is, can't we? We can all tell someone how good is what he has done for our souls. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. That's the gist of these first 18 verses. The psalmist making mention of manifold reasons for praising the Lord and joyfully praising him for them. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? But before we leave this section, there are just a couple of other things that I need to point out to you in these first 18 verses. One of them is that of the various attributes that the psalmist mentioned here, two of them seem to stand out most prominently in the psalmist's mind. Two of them seem to be at the top of his list. And they are literally at the top of his list. They're the first two attributes that he mentions, both of them in verse 1, loving kindness and faithfulness. Those two attributes of God are often mentioned side by side in this psalm, just as we see them side by side in verse 1. And I say that they're the most important, not only because they're first in the list, but also because they are both repeated more than once. Take loving kindness, first of all. We see it there in verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. Then we see it again in verse 2. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. Then we see it a third time in verse 14. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So three times this one attribute is repeated in verses 1 through 18. And then it's repeated four times more throughout the remainder of the psalm. Or seven times in all. And so when the psalmist thinks of his God and when he opens his mouth and when he sets his pen to paper to praise him, one of his chief thoughts about his God is, my God is a God of loving kindness, of mercies. 
And I just wonder if that's at the top of our list when we think about God, His loving kindness, His goodness toward us. Or if some of us struggle with imagining Him as an austere God who is probably really disappointed with us. Not the psalmist. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. And then the other attribute that comes in at the top of the psalmist's list is God's faithfulness. And once again, this is a theme we find repeated, not only in the first 18 verses, but throughout the psalm. Verse 1b, to all generations I will make known your faithfulness. Verse 2b, in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Verse 5, the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. And he mentions it again in verse 24 and verse 33 and verse 49 for a total of seven mentions of God's faithfulness. Maybe eight, depending on how your version translates verse 14. And so again, it's clear that this is an uppermost theme in the psalmist's mind. When he thinks of his God, he thinks of a God of faithfulness of a God who always follows through, of a God who always keeps his word, of a God who always remembers his covenant and upholds his promises. And in fact, the rest of the psalm from verse 19 to the end is really an expansion of this theme of God's faithfulness, of God's covenant-keeping nature. Particularly, the psalmist is interested in God's faithfulness to the covenant that he made with David to give him a throne that would stand forever. And that's the other thing that I've yet to touch on in these first 18 verses, God's covenant with David. It's the main theme in verses 19 and following, but it's also brought into this string of reasons to praise God in verses 1 through 18. Because after lauding God for his loving kindness and faithfulness in verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 and 4, the psalmist gives us further reason to praise God by reminding us of what the Lord himself says about his covenant with David. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Here, in other words, is an example of what I'm talking about, says the psalmist. Here's another way in which we must praise the Lord, both for who he is and for what he's done. The Lord is faithful, verses 1 and 2. That's who he is. And because he is faithful, listen to what he has done, verses 3 and 4. He's made this covenant with David to build up his throne to all generations. And it's this covenant with David, I say, that becomes the theme for the remainder of the psalm. After the psalmist finished finishes praising the Lord in verses 1 through 18 for a whole handful of attributes and actions, he zeroes in, beginning in verse 19, on this one attribute of faithfulness and on the one action of God keeping his covenant with David. And so I just want you to read with me now what our psalmist has to say about God's faithfulness to this covenant, verses 19 through 37. Once... You spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. 
My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips." Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. And it is this covenant, I say, that the psalmist wants now to focus on for the remainder of the psalm. And this covenant, all of it, Harkens back to the books of First and Second Samuel, when the Lord rejected Saul from being king over Israel, and He sent the prophet Samuel to the little town of Bethlehem and to the house of a man called Jesse to anoint a new king over the people of God. And Jesse brought in his sons one after the other to pass before Samuel, seven of them in all, but none of them was the Lord's chosen. And finally, Jesse sent for the eighth one, his youngest son, and he brought him in from tending the sheep. And the Lord said to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And 1 Samuel chapter 16 records for us that Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And David became a great man. He became a great warrior. He became a great leader of men, and eventually the time came when the people recognized him as God's appointed shepherd, and David was crowned king over all the house of Israel. And David wanted to build a house for the Lord, something more permanent than the tabernacle that God had commissioned in the wilderness. But the Lord spoke to him through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and said to him, in essence, you want to build a house for me? But I am going actually to build a house for you. And of course, the house that the Lord was going to build for David was not to be a physical dwelling place, but a dynasty. There was going to be a house of David in Israel in the same way that there is a house of Windsor in England today. And this dynasty, this house of David, would be no temporary fixture like the house of Saul had been or like all the royal houses of the world today. No, this dynasty that God promised to David would last forever. That was the covenant that God made with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. 
When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's what you call a covenant. God binding himself to an individual in a solemn pact. God making solemn promises and committing himself on oath to those promises and to their recipients. Such was the nature of God's covenant commitment to David. And this covenant that I just read to you from 2 Samuel 7 is what the psalmist has in mind here, isn't it? both in verses 3 and 4 and in verses 19 through 37. Hopefully you could hear the echoes as we read along. Here he is, rehearsing God's choice of David in verses 19 through 20, rehearsing God's promise to be with David and to bless him in verses 21 through 27, and then especially rehearsing his covenant with David to grant him an everlasting dynasty. The psalmist briefly rehearses that covenant, that promise, to give David an enduring house in verses 3 and 4. Verse 4, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And then he reiterates that in verses 28 and 29. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And then he really nails this covenant in place in verses 30 through 37, where he declares that even if David's descendants are unfaithful, even if the men who sit on this covenant throne are ungodly, even then God will not renege on his promise to David. Then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. So three times the psalmist reiterates God's covenant. Three times he rehearses God's solemn oath to give David a dynasty that will last forever. And he's also reminded us that God will keep that covenant even if the human beings with whom he has made it do not. As Paul puts it in the New Testament, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That's what faithfulness is. God will not, God cannot deny himself. He cannot go back on his word. And his faithfulness, as we have said already, is great reason to praise God, isn't it? Praise God that he's a covenant-making God and praise him all the more that he's a covenant-keeping God. Praise God that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Don't we need that? If we're in Christ, we have entered into a covenant with God. We've entered into what's called the new covenant. And God has made promises to us as well. God has bound himself solemnly to us who are in Christ, promising to forgive our sins, promising to make us more like his son, promising to grant us a home with him in heaven and to send his son back for us someday so that we may dwell in a new heavens and a new earth and to wipe every tear, wipe away every tear when he does come. And all of these great promises and the covenant through which they come to us are signed in nothing less than blood. 
the blood of God's own dear Son. And if we are in this covenant with God through Christ, I say that praise God that He holds up His end of the bargain, even when we do not. Praise God that just as in Psalm 89, 30 and following, that even if we do not fully follow through on our half of the bargain, even when we forget God and do not trust Him as we should, that He yet says to us, My covenant I will not violate. God always keeps His end of the pact. And He would certainly do so in verses 30 and following in the case of His covenant with David. If His sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will... You might expect it to say, then I will cut them off and find somebody new to put on the throne, right? That's not what he says. If they don't listen, if they don't obey, then I will, verse 32, punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. What an amazing promise. What amazing faithfulness, right? But therein lies a problem for the psalmist. He's just rehearsed God's covenant with David and the irrevocable nature of it. But then when we come to verses 38 through 51, the psalmist, we find, is living at a period in time when it sure seems like God has reneged. Like God has forgotten his word to David. Like he has spurned the covenant. Listen to what the psalmist says now about God's anointed servant David and the covenant that he made with him. Verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turned back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Now that's an amazing turnaround, isn't it? In verses 19 through 37, he's saying, you are the covenant-keeping God. You always keep your promises. You won't turn back on your covenant. But then in verses 38 through 51, he stops and turns and says, but I'm having a hard time seeing evidence for that today. I'm having a hard time, Lord, when I look around at the kingdom of David today seeing your covenant being followed through upon. And we should ask, what could have been going on to make the psalmist so despair of David's dynasty and of God's covenant with him? 
There are probably a number of points in the Old Testament at which we might look at David's descendants, the kings in Jerusalem, and wonder if the house of David was actually a forlorn hope. But when particularly was the psalmist writing these things? What was happening? Well, his name may give us a clue. The psalm is inscribed, as we read at the top, to a certain Ethan, the Ezraite. And there was a man by that name, according to 1 Kings 4.31, who lived in the days of David's son Solomon. But how could a man living in King Solomon's day already be concerned that David's dynasty wouldn't last, that God may have spurned the covenant with David? Wasn't Solomon's reign one of great splendor and glory in Israel? It was. So how could a man living in that time be saying the things that the psalmist says beginning in verse 38? Well, Matthew Henry suggests that perhaps this Ethan lived to see the days after Solomon's death when the ten northern tribes of Israel rebelled against the house of David and David's grandson Rehoboam was left with only two tribes to reign over. The country was torn in two so that perhaps it seemed like the dynasty was about to fall and David's crown, verse 39, had been profaned in the dust. And another commentator, Franz Dalich, also reminds us that during the days of this same Rehoboam, David's grandson, one of the pharaohs came up to Judah and captured its fortified cities, something like what we read here in verse 40, and plundered the temple treasury in Jerusalem, as in verse 41. And so we can imagine if, if this Ethan lived long enough to see the reign of David's grandson, this man who lost 10 out of the 12 tribes, this man who was humbled at the hands of Pharaoh and the temple plundered and Judah's fortified cities captured, we can see why he might have said, Lord, what is becoming of this dynasty that you promised to David? We're only two generations down the road and it seems like it's deteriorating so quickly. So this may have been the time that this Ethan sat down to record his agony before the Lord and to say, you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. How long, O Lord, verse 46, will you hide yourself forever? It's possible that the psalm was written very early on in the Davidic dynasty in the years of David's grandson, Rehoboam. But as I read through this section The words in verses 38 and following also remind me of the latter days of the Old Testament when the house of David was faltering even more significantly and the Babylonians were sacking Jerusalem and breaking down its walls, verse 40, and the city was being plundered, verse 41. And David's dynasty in earthly terms actually ceased when Nebuchadnezzar came and removed the last king from the throne, replaced him with a governor, and carried most of the subjects of the house of David away into exile in Babylon. These latter verses of the psalm do sound to me like they may have been written during the sacking of Jerusalem by the Babylonians many, many years later. But then the question is, how could Ethan the Ezraite have written about these events, which happened generations after he lived? And again, Matthew Henry is helpful. He suggests that it's possible that the words at the top of the psalm, a mosque of Ethan the Ezraite, may refer to the man who composed the tune, not the man who composed the words to the psalm. In other words, the idea is that 
maybe an unknown author penned these words during the period of the Babylonian takeover and then noted at the top of the page that they should be sung to that old tune composed by Ethan the Ezraite. At the end of the day, I'm not sure which is a better option, whether Ethan wrote the words during the days of David's grandson, Rehoboam, or whether Ethan wrote the tune that was picked up by a later psalmist as he watched David's kingdom collapse under the weight of Babylon. But whoever penned these words, and whenever he wrote them, the main thing is that it looked to him for all the world like God had perhaps broken his covenant with David. It did not appear to him that the dynasty could last. This dynasty that God had promised would be established forever like the moon, verse 37. And the psalmist can't make sense of it. He doesn't understand why God is not intervening, why God seems to have defaulted on his covenant with David, why David's crown seems to lie in the dust and the dynasty seems to be coming to an end. And I wonder, whenever he wrote, I wonder how many others living in his day thought just like the psalmist did. How many others were thinking, boy, didn't God make a promise to these guys? Didn't God make a promise to our kings? What is happening, God? And whenever he wrote, I wonder also, especially after the exile into Babylon, when for all those years there was no more kingdom to speak of at all and certainly no king to sit on David's throne, I wonder how many Jewish people wondered, just like the psalmist wondered, if God had perhaps spurned the covenant. And even, you know, when the Jews came back to the land of promise and rebuilt the temple and reestablished Jerusalem, there was still no king from the line of David, sitting on Jerusalem's throne. They were ruled by Persia and later by the Romans, right on down into the New Testament era and beyond. And even to this day, two plus millennia later, the geopolitical nation of Israel still has no king. They have their land back partially, and they have their own parliament and prime minister, but there's no king sitting on the throne in Zion. So we might say, well, maybe God did finally spurn the covenant. Maybe he finally said to the house of David, enough is enough. Your rebellion has gone too far. I will not abide it any longer. The dynasty is ended. All of their disobedience to God, all of their idol worship and so on. Maybe God finally said, that's it. I'm washing my hands of your family I know that's not what verses 30 through 37 say that God would do. But we might wonder, maybe the wickedness of the Davidic kings was just so much as to even override a covenant like this one. Maybe that's what the psalmist feared was happening. And that's certainly what the Babylonian captivity may have seemed to be saying to the house of David and to their subjects in Judah. The covenant with David is broken. But is it? Was the removal of David's son from their position as kings in the ancient city of Jerusalem, was that really a signal that God had spurned the covenant? That David's dynasty would not last all generations? Or is it possible that Nebuchadnezzar's raid and his removal of that last Judean king and the fact that even after the return from exile, never again has geopolitical Israel had a king, is it possible that those heavy blows were not God's spurning of the covenant, but actually part of the covenant punishment that he promised in verses 30 through 32? 
If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Is it possible that the long period in which David's family tree languished in obscurity was the discipline of the covenant and not the breaking of the covenant? And if so, how would we know? How would we know that all that befell the house of David with his throne eventually lying in the dust, how would we know that that was the discipline of the covenant and not God just washing his hands of them altogether? The only way we would know is if God eventually put another son of David back on the throne, right? To continue his faithfulness to his promise. But if you simply read the Wikipedia pages that detail the Israeli government, you would say it hasn't happened yet. There's still no king on David's throne. But if you turn from the internet and actually go back and read the Bible, if you read the prophecies and if you read the New Testament, you'll have an entirely different viewpoint, won't you? Do you remember the great prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 2 through 7? The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire." For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Did you hear it? Isaiah is reiterating the same promise that we read in Psalm 89, the same covenant that we read in 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah is saying the same thing. There's going to be a child born, and he's going to sit on David's throne, and he will reign forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And yet, it hadn't happened yet when the psalmist was writing. And even at the close of the Old Testament, it hadn't happened yet, had it? I think we'd be hard-pressed to argue that any of the latter-day Old Testament kings fulfilled those marvelous predictions from the pen of Isaiah, which is why when we open the New Testament, we find that the Jews are still awaiting this promised king. They're still looking for the son of David that the Old Testament had prophesied. They didn't think God had broken his covenant. They were awaiting the day when a son of David would sit on the throne again. And many of them, alas, are still waiting. But God often works in ways that we don't expect, doesn't he? And so it was that there was a young couple in Nazareth, working class and relatively poor, and far removed from the great halls of Jerusalem, and yet by ancient lineage of the house and family of David. David's throne had long sat vacant, but his line had not died out. And out of that family tree, after many generations of waiting, came a little shoot 
a descendant of the great king, one who was destined to restore the dynasty and to fill David's seat once more and to demonstrate once and for all that God never breaks his covenant. I hope you see what I'm getting at. Jesus is the answer to the psalmist's great dilemma here. How can it be that God makes this covenant with David to grant him an everlasting dynasty, and yet from the psalmist's perspective, it seems to be crumbling beneath his feet? And from an even later perspective, how can God make good on his covenant after hundreds of years with no king reigning in Jerusalem at all? The answer is Jesus, right? He came as the greater son of David to build a house for God in ways that Solomon never could. He was the answer to how David's line can not only be restored to the throne, but sit upon it forever because he, unlike those other kings, has risen from the grave never to perish again. And those who come to this king in faith not only become children of Abraham, they become subjects of the house of David. So yes, there is a dilemma in Psalm 89, and we could understand why the psalmist might have wondered how on earth God was going to make good on his covenant promises to uphold the house of David. And the answer to that dilemma is Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that all God's promises are answered in Jesus. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. 2 Corinthians 1.20 as many as the promises as many as are the promises of God in him they are yes think about that think about the covenant that God made with Abraham many years before David came along indeed i will greatly bless you and i will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. How are those covenant promises to Abraham fulfilled? They weren't fulfilled in Abraham's day, were they? When Abraham was laid to rest, you couldn't have foreseen that God had made all the nations to be blessed in his family. You couldn't have seen it even in the days of the great kings, David and Solomon. And not by the closing of the Old Testament either. Indeed, at the end of the Old Testament, if we just look at it from a human perspective, the promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, that promise may have seemed like a farce at the close of the Old Testament. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed? Really? With Israel existing as a colony of Persia and soon to be under the thumb of Rome? How could it be possible that this tiny little nation wedged against the Mediterranean Sea could be a blessing to the whole earth? Well, we have to keep reading on into the Gospels. And when we get there, we find the Messiah. We find the seed of Abraham. We find the son of David. And then we read the book of Acts and how the news about him began to spread to the remotest part of the earth. And then we read the missionary newsletters today and we see that the promise to Abraham is indeed yes. And it's yes in Jesus. We could say the same thing about the covenant with Moses. It found its true fulfillment, not in the tabernacle, not in the priests, not in the lambs, but in the one they were given to symbolize. And of course, God promised in Jeremiah 31 a new covenant in which God's law would be written not merely on tablets of stone, but on his people's hearts. A covenant in which all God's people would know him personally. A covenant by which he said, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. 
and whose blood signed and sealed this covenant? And how are we born again into this knowledge of God? Isn't the yes to the new covenant found once again in Jesus? It's in union with him that we come truly to know God. And it is his blood which covers our sins permanently so that God remembers them no more. And so I tell you, as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. All of them are yes in Jesus. And that's true. Let me remind you, not only of Psalm 89 and not only of the great biblical covenants that unfold God's plan for history, but it's also true with every promise within those covenants that God makes individually to you. If you truly belong to the Lord, he has promised never to desert you or forsake you. He has promised to cause all things to work together for your good. He's promised to prepare a place for you in heaven. He's promised to hear your prayers. He's promised to give you the Holy Spirit and so many other things. And as many as are the promises of God in him, they are, yes. Do you really think that God, having given his own dear son for you, would then let any other lesser need slip by him unnoticed? That's Paul's logic in Romans 8.32, isn't it? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That promise is as true and as rock solid for you, Christian, as was God's promise to give David an eternal dynasty. And though you may not see it coming true, though you may sit like the psalmist and wonder what God is up to, the promise will be found to be yes in Jesus. Not because your individual needs or mine carry the weight or importance of the Messiah's family tree that we're reading about here, but because God, however big or small his promises may be, is a God of faithfulness. And isn't that the main message of this psalm? I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. And if you are in covenant with God through Jesus, those words are as true for you as they were for David. And so, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. That's how the psalmist began, by confessing God's faithfulness. But as he looked around at his surroundings, he began to doubt, he began to wonder how it was possible, given the circumstances, that God would ever make good on his word. And as I say, maybe you have been doing that too. Maybe you have been saying to yourself or to the Lord, I don't know how you're going to work this for good. It doesn't seem like this particular prayer will ever be answered, God. This part of my life just seems to have been forgotten by you. But if you've been saying that or thinking it, I hope that as we've come to the end of this psalm, and because you know this Jesus, who is the yes to all God's promises, and as you now see God's plans and God's faithfulness even more clearly than the psalmist ever could, I hope as we come to the end now that you'll find yourself concluding with the psalmist. Even in the midst of your doubts and questions and worries and fears, verse 52, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.